Welcome to the third episode of Right Stuff through the Headstuff Podcast Network with me, Chris Fitzgerald, and presented by Daniel O'Connor. In this episode, I talk to Kerry Neville. Kerry teaches creative writing at Georgia College and State University. She writes both fiction in her two collections, Necessary Lies and Remember to Forget Me, as well as non-fiction through various journals and online and publications like The Fix, The Washington Post and The Huffington Post. Kerry is a writer, I suppose, who has experienced a lot, and this comes across in her writing. We had a very wide-ranging chat, so I hope you enjoy this. Uh, please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Right, so, Kerry, uh, you're you're kind of just landed in Ireland, you but you do have a connection with here a bit. Like, I do what, have a connection. How does that, how does that go back? Uh, it goes back to my, well, as most Irish Americans, my ancestors. Hmm. And I have a direct connection to Limerick. My great-grandmother was born in Limerick. Um, and I discovered her um, baptismal records online. So um, when I'm here in the fall, I think I'm going to try to find some of my relatives. I think many Irish Americans lost touch with their larger extended family. Um, she immigrated in um, 1917, I think, 18. Um, and once she came over, there was no communication back and she came from a pretty large family uh, she actually had a ticket on the Titanic wow. <laughs> and she was 16 at the time and her parents decided she was too young to go over that year so she sold her ticket and it was likely a steerage ticket so I think the only reason why I'm sitting here in Limerick it's a kind of strange you mm. know circle and 100 years later pretty much yeah exactly. and is is because she you know Somebody else went in her place, you yeah. know. Um, and then the other strange kind of connection is where I teach in Georgia. It's a place called Milledgeville. And it's the home of the American writer Flannery O'Connor. Mm. Yeah, so Very her farm fun. is there. And uh, her family was from Limerick. Yeah. And she's an O'Connor, and my great-grandmother was an O'Connor from Limerick. So there is a distinct <laughs> possibility yeah. if I do ancestry DNA... That I'm yeah. related to Flannery O'Connor, and we all came from this place. That's mad. Yeah, it's all a bit incestuous around here. You'll get yeah. it. You'll well, I, I, I've been looking around, and I'm like, you look like a relative, and you look like a relative. There's definitely DNA yeah. happening. But do you feel that kind of connection with the place, then? I, I do. Know, it's been 100 years. Like, yeah, no, I really do. And, um, you know, I think in, in the States, if you are uh, Irish-American, there's a distinct sense, for whatever it's worth, that part of your identity, even if you've never been back or been to Ireland, that part of your identity comes from this place, and um, the landscape speaks to me. Does yeah. that ever come into your writing? It does, uh, not necessarily yet in terms of um, here, but certainly writing about um, Irish Catholic families in the States in my first book, it sort of um, came through that. Uh, you know, I was, I went to Catholic high school all the way through you know, yeah, <laughs> before I went to college yeah, yeah. so I had the you know the uniform the Franciscan brothers so they were kind of cool because you know they're they love animals and okay. the prayer of St. Francis is yeah. probably one of my favorite prayers and I'm somewhere between an agnostic and an atheist depending on what I need from the universe mm. in a day <laughs> okay that's a good balance to have though I think um yeah but it does come into necessary lies a lot um in the relationships the family relationships and that I think they're kind of the mother-daughter relationships a bit and I, I was just telling you that I haven't been able to get Remember to Forget Me yet the, your book that came out late last year um, is 
is that coming through in that? What do you see as the big differences between those? Because it seems like there's a lot of humor in Necessary Lies that yeah. might be, um, I, I think you're getting a bit closer to the bone and remember to forget me, are you? Yeah, I think, um, you know, my first book, Necessary Lies, I wrote it in my late 20s, early 30s, and uh, maybe I was more of an optimist mm. <laughs> then. Um, but I think the, the, the shift for me sort of moved from thinking about, you know, a lot of the stories in that first collection are about families and kind of dysfunctional relationships and how families are falling apart. Um, in my second book, you know, I went through a significant sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, um, like the time. phoenix, like the yeah. phoenix, you yeah. know, yeah. <laughs> rose from the ashes. Um, you know, and I don't make any, um, I'm not shy about talking about any of this, but I, I had bipolar disorder and I had a pretty significant uh, number of years where things were not stable at all and I had to stop teaching um, just to sort of get my myself back together. Mm. And so I think some of the, the sort of irony or the, the easier comedy in the first book, I couldn't do that anymore. Yeah. Um, I, I felt like if I was going to go back to writing fiction, because in, in between I was writing a lot of uh, nonfiction essays and I'm working on a memoir now, but if I was going to go back to writing fiction, I had to write it as if my life depended upon it, you know, mm. that everything was at stake. And so I think Remember to Forget Me, it's very much about people who are uh, living in exile from literal homelands. You know, there are some characters who come from places they've been kind of forced to leave. They're maybe emotional refugees. Um, and it's very much about a kind of um, confession and absolution that maybe that gets back to what is my kind of Catholic leftovers, yeah, right? Yeah, what yeah. remains after sort of giving up the orthodoxy is this kind of belief in um, the more ethical values that I've kind of intuited. And, and, and so I think a lot of the characters in the second book are looking to um, find their way back into community. Yeah. And it's not always possible, right? Yeah. I mean, that's where optimism, I think, fails. I mean, the kind of easy optimism, yeah. you know, just pull yourself up yeah, by your yeah. bootstraps kind of American thinking. Yeah which, you know, right now our current administration seems to be saying that to people who have been raised in systemic poverty. Mm. So, you know, African-American communities and immigrant communities, um, fear, mm. right? It's fear-based. Mm. And, and so I think these are characters who, despite all of these obstacles, despite fear, despite loneliness, despite grief, they want to find a way back into... Um, Genuine connection. Yeah, and recovery is kind of a big theme of your writing, I think, isn't it? Because it is. you're you're writing about all of these struggles, and but it never sounds like it's not like oh, woe is me. And I yeah. think there's always hope, and you know, never feel you're very honest with a lot of your nonfiction. Is really yeah. honest. It's like <laughs> it's a bit like Joni Mitchell songs when you're kind of listening to them and you're thinking. <laughs> It's, it feels slightly uncomfortable reading it sometimes because yeah. it is so honest. And how do you feel when you're putting it out there then? You know, you're, you're probably at some stage clicking a submit or clicking a send <laughs> or something. And, you're, you're and then I go back and can I take it back? Right? Yeah, do you ever feel that? 
I feel that about my Facebook posts okay. <laughs> or my Twitter yeah. posts, you know. But most of that has to do with um, indecorous comments about politics okay. more than myself. I think uh, I was talking about this last night with a writer at the festival. You know, what happened to me in terms of my own personal sort of mental health history is it was a, it was a fairly public collapse, mm. right? So, um, you know, I was in and out of the hospital many times. So my friends knew, my family knew, my, um, my college at the time, they knew because they were giving me lots of leaves. Uh, I had an eating disorder. So, um, you know, if you suffer from anorexia, it's pretty evident to anybody who looks at you mm-hmm. what's going on. And so I got to a, a place where I just decided um, I was going to be kind of a missionary, yeah. you know, in, in the best possible sense, not to convert, but to uh, share my story in a way that was absolutely radically honest. Uh, because I, when I was, I don't know if ill is even the right word. Uh, I don't like to think about illness and wellness necessarily. But when I was kind of struggling sort of at the bottom of the well, I wasn't reading stories out there that, you know, a lot of sort of memoirs that are about recovery tend to focus on sort of the salacious, Mm. uh, the headline kinds of moments. Uh, I wanted to read, I wanted to find myself someplace in somebody else's story that made sense to me and that was more about this is what we go through, but we can not just survive it, but it can transform us, mm-hmm. you know, into something larger than we ever imagined. And so I started writing when I was, um, when I was suffering, and I wasn't really writing fiction, but I knew I had to write. You know, as a writer for me, that's what has kept me alive okay. every day, sitting down and putting words to the page, and they may not make sense, but they're necessary to me. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's how I fill myself up, is through language. That's how I remind myself that I'm alive, is yeah. through uh, putting a word, and then another word, and then a sentence, and then constructing a possibility, a thought. What do you feel when you're rereading, then, those thoughts? I mean, you're putting it out there as a very right. honest expression, and then you reread it? Like, how does that feel? It feels... That's a, that's, a, that's a funny question. I hadn't really thought about how it feels. There, there are moments when I, I sort of say, oh, shite. Picking <laughs> <laughs> up the Irish lingo, nice. <laughs> Did I really say that? Did yeah. I really want people to know that about myself? Yeah. Um, but then I also, it, it comes back to also who I am as a mother mm. as well. I have two kids, and they're, uh, one is, uh, my daughter's almost 16, and my son is, is 12. And I... I didn't grow up with a lot of emotional honesty. Um, Is that the Catholic thing again? The Catholic mm. thing. I think it's also just generational. Um, you know, I, you know, I'm 45, and I think it's only my generation where you know therapy is just mm. everybody goes to therapy at some point mm. in their life, right? It was a given. Um, but I decided as as a mother that I wanted my kids to be able to know me in my failings and also in my um, kind of resurrection. I don't know why I'm talking about this religious relying question. <laughs> yes, redemption. Redemption, okay, right, right, right. Redemption. 
Um, but that, you know, another life is possible. So while all of my sort of personal writings, my essays, are about some of the the difficulties, the, hor- the horrors, the collapse, what I try to always end with is a place of safety and redemption. So my children, my sort of first audience, can see that if things get difficult for them, there's always going to be another possibility, you know, to hang on and wait for it because we don't know what's coming. And I think a lot of that is also transferred to my characters and my fiction, mm. right? I mean, they're sort of at these these crucial moments where everything could be ending mm. for them. Um, That's something that um, we're, you're, you're here at the moment for the Creative Writing Festival, yeah. Frank McCourt Creative Writing Festival in UL. And Two nights ago, there was a talk with, I know you were at it, with Kevin Barry and Julian mm-hmm. Goff, and they brought up the idea that there are moments when they realise that they're writing about themselves when they're writing their fiction. Yeah. And it's kind of, it, they don't realise it up to a certain point. I think Julian Goff gave the example of, I'm writing about divorce, and he was going yeah. through a divorce. <laughs> um, but it seems like, he, are you always aware that you're writing about yourself, even when you're writing fiction? Or is that something that's not... I would say... What I'm aware of is I'm writing about kind of an emotional wrangling that interests me. So it's not so much the facts of my life that I write about in my fiction. Obviously, my nonfiction I do because that's the definition, right? Mm. Personal essay. But in my fiction, it's what is the kind of emotional effect that I'm trying to figure out, and I figure it out through the idea of a story. Uh, I mean, I think it would be tedious to try to write fiction based on, you know, my case history, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. That's just, uh, there's, there's no imaginative possibility in that, in fiction, because you always know what's going to happen next, right? Yeah. Um, it's not as interesting to me, and one of the reasons why I write fiction, and in my Second book, most of the characters are not like me at all. They um, have radically different lives. I'm interested in sort of empathetic understanding. You know, what is it like to be this other person in this other kind of life, but who might be similarly like me experiencing loneliness or or grief or betrayal or jealousy Mm. or rage and... So that's where I think the correspondence happens. Yeah. Um, so just to get back to your your position in Georgia State teaching creative writing, and you're going to be here in a Fulbright scholarship from the autumn term this year. Yes. And doing something similar here. Do you think that, or from your experience, is there a difference between um, Irish writers and American writers, or readers even? Um, readers, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, just as an anecdote, I went for a swim at my hotel pool yesterday morning, yeah. and then I jumped in the, uh, I guess, the jacuzzi, the hot tub, yeah. and there was uh, another woman in there, and we got to talking, and she was a retired school teacher, and then she found out I was at the Writers' Festival, and she asked me who I like to read, and there we were in the hot tub yeah. starting to talk about Lionel Shriver, <laughs> Alice Munro, Doris Lessing, yeah. Margaret Atwood, 
I guarantee you that's not really going to happen in the United States. Really? Yeah. I've had the best conversations in the sauna and jacuzzi, here, by the way. It's <laughs> something about when you're... When you're stripped, stripped down. down. and you're, you're, you're very close to somebody, you know, obviously. And you're both doing the same thing and you have to start a conversation. I've had really deep conversations just in the sauna here. By the way, sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, because you're not going to talk about, I mean, trivial things. No, I really. know. Yeah, it's, yeah, a strange it's, it's a great place for a conversation. Um, you're in a kind of hot box and yeah, yeah. you're sweating. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but do you ever fear, like, because I was thinking about this yesterday, I was listening to a podcast called Song Exploder, and it's um, it's where musicians, they really kind of take apart songs that they've recorded and they go through every part of them. And, um, and there was the one that I listened to yesterday was by this artist who I've really been listening to a lot recently, and especially this song that she pulled apart. And after listening to that, I had actually no interest in listening to the song ever again mm-hmm. like every part of the mystery of it was gone yeah do you ever fear that that might that kind of thing might happen with um talking about writing so much and getting into the ins and outs of the methods and the process and all of that do you think that might take from readers pleasure in um consuming it for me i always tell my students read first you know when we have workshop and students bring their pieces that are up for discussion you know, I tell everybody in the workshop, read first for pleasure. Don't read like a critic. Just mm. read to enter the imaginative space that's been created for you on the page and, and let it sit with you. And then go back in and read it a second time and start to think, how is this put together? And in what ways is it succeeding? And, and you try to think about the the writer's intentions. Not that we I, we can know each other's intentions, but... I think a danger in writing workshops is trying to make everybody write like yourself, mm. you know, and that's tedious. And I, I don't presume to speak for, you know, any of my friends who are writers or my students who are writers, uh, their intentions or their desires for a story or an essay. So I think when we go in, I mean, I, I don't think we should be kind of editors of publishing houses who are trying to shape work and what it's supposed to do for an audience. I think as, as readers, we're really in conversation about uh, what moves us in a piece, um, at what points do we kind of drift away, and why. And so rather than thinking in terms of mechanics, and we do, I mean, when I, when I talk about this with my students, we'll go through a paragraph or two to look at mechanics in terms of what's working and not in terms of uh, sentence structure or rhythm and cadence or um, vocabulary. You know, I am someone who am always telling my students, you know, find concrete, specific words that are intentional. You know, go to a thesaurus, (laughs) you know. Take pleasure in having a rich and varied vocabulary uh, because I think you know, I think one of the dangers, and we were talking about this the other night, right now, especially uh, in the United States, we have a kind of paucity of vocabulary. Um, you know, we have a, a president, you know, who, who seems to, in all of his public tweets, which is his publishing vehicle of choice, um, tends to have a range of 50 words you know, and, and I, but I, th- I think that's indicative, too, of a larger effect that's happening. Um, people aren't as interested. Maybe it's because of texting. I don't know. It, it, yeah, it's I, hard I don't to know. tell. Yeah, but hopefully the pendulum will swing the other I way hope, at some stage and it'll come back to 
people enjoying large lexicons again and people yeah. not just all these sound bites but I don't know it's, yeah. it's worrying or um, one of the things I always do with like in my in my student pieces I'm always circling going you know general abstract general abstract mm. find find the word find the right word yeah. um, because language matters uh, you know we have a a world where things are literally disappearing you know the extinction of species mm. and I really think that if we don't know the the exacting names of things, we don't notice when they go missing or we don't know to remember that they went missing. Mm. And if we're writing with that same kind of lackadaisical attention, you know, we, we aren't, we don't have integrity, right? Mm. We're, not, we're not seeing the world or seeing our characters in their uniqueness, Right, which is all about then artistic vision, mm. right? That's what makes an American writer different from an Irish writer, yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but what do you see as your overall role then? Um, you know, not just in giving your workshops here, but your overall role as a kind of going from being a creative writer to teaching creative writing. Um, I know you you've had mentors. Uh, great mentors, yeah. some of the great short story writers. Yeah. Um, do you see yourself as now kind of another link in that chain? And like you were saying, you're trying to, you're trying not to influence too much, but you're trying to kind of guide students towards their paths. Is that what you see your role as? I, I do. I see myself as um, a sort of facilitator mm. in their journey. And it's it's funny you say about like my mentors. I I'm always talking to my students about how they are inheriting. The things that I say in, in class, in a workshop, aren't necessarily my own ideas. They've come through the people that I studied with and the people I studied with that came from. So there's this kind of great, it's like the great chain of being, yeah, you know, yeah. the great chain of writers' beings. And we're sort of just a couple of degrees of separation from, from each other. And, you know, more than sort of teaching plot structure, form, mm -hmm. mechanics, I think it's important that we talk about why writing matters, and that's what I have learned the most from my teachers. You know, I um, studied with Frederick Bush, who was my undergraduate mentor, and really he became a kind of, you know, for an Irish Catholic girl from Queens, he was my Jewish father from <laughs> Brooklyn, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. And he, he sort of made this, this argument that If you're just going to write something where we just shrug at it, like the so what, mm. why do it? You know, and if you are going to write, you have to think about each story, each paragraph, each sentence, each word has to resonate and has to have weight and it can't be sloppy. And, you know, writing like, you know, the, uh, the philosopher, I think it's Edmund Burke, you know, says literature is equipment for living. Hmm. You know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that we're not just reading for entertainment. We're actually learning how to be better inhabitants of this world and better partners to each other in this world, you yeah. know, through the possibilities that we read in fiction or nonfiction or poetry. I, I mean, I, I, every morning I begin my day by reading a poem because okay. it kind of grounds me yeah. in language and in stillness, um, contemplation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it sounds so easily said, but it's yeah. it is hard work as well. And another talk that we were both at last night with Marion Keys, she yeah. was talking about the ninety percent hard work and the ten percent talent. Yeah. Do you see there 
in your position now, you're, I presume you're reading an awful lot of students' work. I is, am. Is the world of literature in good hands? Are we... Yeah, I, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the most exciting things is that the world of literature is no longer in the hands of um, <laughs> white male writers. Okay. Yeah. You know, yeah. that it's very exciting that there are all of these voices coming in from experiences that in the past we would have given kind of token space to, like, oh, the you know marginalized writers, you know, they, they get their space on the side. Um, but I think we have to revise our notion of what's at the center of mm. writing. Mm. And I think, yes, white um, white writers, male writers contribute, but they're no longer the kind of standard bearers. You know, mm. I, I took a class in college that an entire semester was just reading Hemingway. Mm. Mm. And I don't know that I would ever ask my students to do that now. I mean, mm. I, I love Hemingway, but I think there are so many other voices that are sort of that need to be sort of read and understood and felt and given not sort of space, but really the kind of central space. Mm -hmm. You know, when I construct a syllabus for my classes, uh, I no longer think about the greats, mm -hmm. you know, because who decides who are the greats? Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, it's anthologies or, mm -hmm. you know, and so I really try to make a, a very deliberate effort to incorporate as... As much diversity of, of, of background and experience and yeah. yeah. So the diversity is one big change and also I guess the, the media that we're using now is a big yeah. difference. I mean when you wrote Necessary Lies, an awful lot of the media that you're using to now publish your... <laughs> no, your you're really <laughs> dating me. No, no, what I mean... It's, I'm 95 years old. <laughs> said you're but I look really good. Dorian Gray sitting right here. <laughs> but you know, like that, that kind of media wasn't around then and so it's like... Yeah. It's, completely changed your way of writing and your way of getting to the public and are you it has. are you bringing that into your teaching as well and the different media I do I mean I, I have my um, students they submit to print journals but I also make them submit to online journals mm. just to sort of uh, well I think here's the thing right we can bemoan the rise of kind of oh. online media as uh too many people are publishing, right? I mean, there's too many people about writing blogs and too many journals online and what's the best journal and what's... I think all of that is kind of crap because I think what's happening is it's more democratic. Um, you know, people aren't necessarily... My students aren't necessarily only interested in publishing a book mm. with a, you know, uh, one of the you know big publishing companies like, you know, HarperCollins, yeah. right? What they're, they're really interested in just sort of getting their voices heard, mm. You know, yeah. and and they're very suspicious of, you know, these are like my graduate students in their in their twenties. They're very suspicious of the kind of um, kind of old channels of mm. publishing. Um, they don't make those same distinctions. Now they would mm. like to have a book, but if that doesn't happen, there are all these other possibilities. Mm. You know, that they're ready to seize on to. Which is great because they're not thinking of monetizing their work either I presume it's just like get it out there to the widest readership they possibly can and yeah there's and something I, pure about that as well isn't there there is and I mean I wouldn't say that they're not thinking about yeah well obviously <laughs> all like that. they would like to yeah. you know have food and shelter yeah, yeah. and clothing <laughs> right. um but but I do think it's allowing many more voices I mean so there's the the difficulty right if there's so many voices who do you listen to mm. or you know what do you focus on? But on the other hand, 
again, it goes back to who gets to claim the space. And now it's not about um, somebody saying, you get to be published. Mm. Now it's, I'm publishing myself. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. and... Um, yeah, yeah, so it's, it's removing that other obstacle, I guess. So you can just yeah. go straight out there. Um, and lots of independent presses, yeah, you know, yeah. are, are, are very successful now yeah. for that very reason. Yeah. So just finally then, Carrie, I know you're working on your memoirs at the moment, and it sounds like each chapter is kind of a, a sense is going, yeah. is a topic of each chapter, and you're working through your whole life through that, or working through <laughs> the, pr- the last few years, or what's... So what's uh, it's tentatively titled... Um, Fierce on the inside, coming back to my senses. So a play on what happens in mental illness, right? Mm. The you lose your sense, your senses. You know, mm. you lost your mind. Um, so coming back, it's it's so it's not so much a. I'll back up for a second. So each chapter, there are we know of five senses, but there's actually six senses. So it's six. The six mm. senses enteroception which they've just kind of discovered, and it's this little sliver of brain that controls our internal sense of feeling. So, um, okay. <laughs> so we're kind of a kind of um, a, one feeling that that controls is when we have to go to the bathroom, okay. <laughs> like that feeling, or when we feel hunger. Like an instinct. Uh, it's 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 instinct, but it's it's actually a, a felt thing okay. inside of the body, right? Mm. And how do we feel that inside of the body? But it's also when, say, we feel shame and we flush with okay. shame and we get hot. Mm. Like, it's this sixth sense that's controlling that. Mm. So I wanted to write um, a kind of a memoir that was going to be focused on recovering because I, I think, you know, we're never fully recovered whatever, you know, we've gone through. We're still in the process. It's a gerund, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but so many memoirs that are out there that are focused on on recovering tend to be this ascendant story where you kind of you fall into hell and then you come back up and you've now are hanging out with the choir of angels singing you know and I couldn't do that I I can't do this linear narrative because each day I feel like I have to construct who I am and make sense of who I am and so I started thinking about how else to write the story, and I have hundreds of pages written, um, and I just I couldn't I couldn't put it into a linear form. And so I started thinking about the collage and thinking about how we make sense of ourselves, and I just sort of stumbled into this idea that for me, really, you know, when you are decimated by depression. And, and you have anorexia, right? And, and you're drinking, and I'm, you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. It's all about numbing and shutting the body down and not feeling, um, not seeing, not hearing. Literally, when you have anorexia, that enteroception part of the brain basically turns off your sense of taste. You know, so mm-hmm. you only taste glue, really. Mm. It, that's, it, you don't really want to eat anyway. Mm. And so I'm sort of looking at each chapter is devoted to one of the senses and how. I tell a story through coming back into that and how it's played out across my life. Okay. Yeah. When did you become aware of the interoception? Was that recently? Just okay. doing research. Yeah. Okay. Because I was I was trying to um, as I was researching all the different senses, you yeah. know. So this is a, a memoir that's not just going to be devoted to like egomaniacal Carrie Neville. Mm. Let me tell you my story. Mm. 
I'm very interested in how science comes into it and philosophy yeah. and, and artists have sort of understood the role of the different senses across, okay. you know. So that's in the background as well while you're writing about your own experiences. It that's, is. So yeah. so the, the actual chapters themselves are, are also collages. So I've actually published a version of the first chapter um, online at a journal called Juxtapros. Okay. It's called Manifestus and it's about touch. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay, look forward to reading it. Thanks a million, Carrie. Thanks yeah, for talking thank to you. us and right stuff. Thank you. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.